Welcome to Food Friday Leftovers, a podcast about all the goodies left over from Food Friday. I'm Dave Hopper. And I'm Ashley Kinsey. Tune in each week as we cover culinary topics such as food trucks, local food, pizza, veggies, beer, and wine. You hungry yet? Huh, I'm always hungry. Well, on that note, Ashley, tell us what's in the fridge this week. No, Ashley, this week, but we've got some spirits and cocktails here. We're talking with John Fisher. He's a professor at the Culinary Institute of America. John, thanks for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. And we're with Gabe Arenzo, who's the, what is it? <laughs> uh, owner and proprietor of Gardner That's... Liquid Mercantile. All right, you did it better than I could do it, so we'll just leave it at that. Okay. Okay, so we're here talking cocktails and spirits, and what are we going to be making here? Um, well, um, I am going to uh, shake up a uh, margarita, but made with jalapeno-infused tequila. Um, I don't have triple sec with me, uh, but I'm going to use some simple syrup um, instead, and that should still give us a balanced cocktail. Is triple sec in tequila sunrises? I think so. Um, not traditionally. Um, a tequila sunrise would have just been tequila, uh, grenadine, and orange grenadine, juice. Grenadine, that's it. Yeah. I was wondering what made my college fraternity room so sticky all the time. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 that's why I stuck with beer in college mostly. Yeah, this would just impress the sorority. It was just, normally we just do beer. Actually, my first bartending was at my frat. Um, it was, uh, I was at Faisai at Swarthmore College, and I, um, it was a busy college party. We were the only frat that actually made mixed drinks, and by mixed drinks, it was gin and tonic and vodka <laughs> and orange juice. You progressed a little in bit. In that there were two ingredients mixed. They were mixed <laughs> cocktails. You were the but, bougie frat, I guess. Right, huh? exactly. <laughs> and um, I had never bartended in my life, and somebody said, Fish, as you might guess, a, a popular nickname for people <laughs> named Fisher. Uh, Fish! We need a bartender. Get behind the bars. I never attended bar in my life. And they said, it doesn't matter. Get back there. It's this much ice. Fill the glass with ice. This much booze. The rest mixer. You're a bartender now. And <laughs> Little did you first... know the slippery slope you were getting I, on. Yeah. <laughs> I had no idea that it was going to replace, it was going to start my career rather than my useless psychology degree, which well, is you, actually You, you just went thing. for psychology and then you found what you were going to do. Bartending anyway. psychology. So... Uh, this is called Tin on Tin, where you shake a cocktail using both tin shakers instead of a glass and metal Boston shaker. And that's the way a lot of bartenders are making cocktails these days um, in major cities and good cocktail bars because it's lighter yeah. and, and it's less stress on you after over a long period of time. So here we go. You want to rap to that? Yeah. <laughs> it's got a good beat going. I tell people that bartender shakes are like uh, snowflakes. Everyone does it just a little bit different. Yeah, your own style. So I guess we'll serve them straight up in plastic glasses. That's classy. <laughs> That's... You can say whatever you want, John. We're on radio. Yeah. So These are beautiful I, crystal look, glasses. It's amazing. Nice big luckily hand carved <laughs> cubes. Luckily, I have a face for radio. <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah, Riedel. Yeah, Riedel. Right. Riedel plastic glasses. Whoa. Landed on me. <laughs> So I mean the base of all Thank you. the base of so many different cocktails Jeff, is the same clink. as the base that you just use just different spirit. Thank you. Cheers. Yeah, basically it's um one part sour, one part sweet, and two parts base spirit. That's delicious. So good with that. Mm. And what That's I love nice. about it, it's so easy to make. And I I will say, and you you'll probably agree, is that jalapeno tequila is really popular now. And it, partly because it's so easy to make. Yeah. And all I did was 
took two jalapenos from my my kitchen garden, cut them into lengthwise quarters, put them in a uh, measuring glass, you know, like a measuring cup, and I just poured the whole bottle of tequila in there, and I tasted it every half an hour, small tastes every <laughs> half hour, um, until it got to the right point of. When you flavor. had to refill that jar with more, <laughs> yeah. more tequila? Well, yeah, I had it to was almost buy there. I just finished it too early. <laughs> I had to buy another bottle of tequila. No, um, <laughs> but I tasted it over a period of time, and I wanted to make sure it didn't get too hot and over-extract the capsaicin, um, which is what makes hot peppers hot. And um, But I also wanted to make sure that it had enough jalapeno flavor. And yes, it can be overdone. Um, there can be too much messing around with things. But when done right, you can see that this is still a balanced cocktail. You can taste the jalapeno. There's a tiny bit of heat yeah, crawling in on the back, is. but not too much. I pride myself on my chili. And for a little while, I made my chili too hot for people. I made it. I, <laughs> I made would it, be one of those people. <laughs> I made it for me, and and I I was not being hospitable technically. Um, so what I do now is I make it at a baseline level of heat, and then I offer people hot sauce and you know, pickled jalapenos and anything they want to do to make their chili hotter. But I start at a point that'll make everybody yeah. happy. And so in a cocktail like this, you don't want people you know reaching for a fire extinguisher um, <laughs> because there was too much heat in the tequila itself. So this would be a pepper if you just ate it before you put in the tequila that would be hot. Yeah, yeah, these these, these jalapenos were pretty hot. Um, and um, I've made it before with store-bought peppers, and as we said during the previous broadcast, it took about a day for it to infuse properly. Um, with this, it only took about three hours. With the fresher peppers, it only took about three hours. Wow. And one thing you can do besides, if you want to do a spicy cocktail, you don't necessarily just want to use tequila or um, infuse a tequila or a vodka. You can also make a syrup, which is something that we do at the Mercantile, where we'll take right. chopped up jalapenos, maybe some fruit, cover them with sugar, let them sit overnight, um, stirring them up occasionally, and it'll end up syrupizing. And then you can just use a little bit of that, the same way you use your sweet in your cocktail, and that gives a little bit of bite to it. And you don't have to use, you know, you can use whatever spirit you want be it tequila or vodka or whiskey. Yeah, I, I never thought of doing that. That's a great idea. Um, it actually harks back to a historic um, preparation called oleosaccharum right. um, that is, uh, was used widely during in, in punch making. If you think about it, well, punch that we all think of is the stuff with canned fruit punch and lemon-lime soda and a huge ice cube made from a, a milk carton at a PTA party. <laughs> but um, a lot of the great bars these days are making punch, which if you think about it, it's kind of like the Ur cocktail. And punch does have to be balanced like a cocktail. One thing that punch should be, though, that cocktails shouldn't, you should be able to drink it over the course of an evening and have it be pleasant the whole time, whereas cocktails need a little more punch, a little more, should be a little bit more exciting. Um, but punch, a lot of punches, to give them more depth of flavor, one of the ingredients is called an oleosaccharum, which sounds really fancy, but all it is is lemon peels and sugar. Hmm. And you let it sit for a couple of hours. It was originally made by taking, if you know anything about, um, I don't want to say ancient cooking, but old cooking methods, sugar came in loaves. It didn't come granulated. And you would take the sugar that was going to be used to sweeten the punch and take an orange or a lemon and rub the outside of the orange or lemon all over the sugar which would grate off the surface, like zesting a lemon mm -hmm. or a lime, but the surface of the sugar was rough, and it would take the part of the rind without the pith that just had the lemon oil or the orange oil 
And they would use that whole loaf of sugar to sweeten the punch, and it gave it the flavor of the lemon or orange, the intense flavor that comes from the oil, as opposed to the flavor that comes from the juice. And um, Valencia oranges were the best oranges to use for this method, and just regular good old American lemon peels. And the way to make it now is to just take the peel off with like a vegetable peeler, put it in the sugar, and let it sit. And you can actually see after a couple of hours, you can feel that kind of wet sand texture of the sugar, and then you just pour in a little bit of warmer hot water to melt it, and then that you use that as one of the ingredients in the punch. Oleosaccharum, is it just lemon peel and sugar, or is that yes, the process? just lemon peel and sugar. Well, If you use berries or other type of fruit. Then I don't think you would call it the oleosaccharum because um, oleo refers to the oil, and the saccharum refers to the sugar, and it was a made-up term. I mean, it's not like something from Pliny the Elder. Uh, <laughs> Sounds good, though. He didn't. He didn't invent. <laughs> he didn't invent the oleosaccharum in his toga. You know. Um, it but, sounds like something from religious ceremony. Oleosaccharum, thou shalt mix the oleosaccharum, <laughs> um, the holy hand grenade. Um, but the uh, oleosaccharum does technically refer to either an orange or a lemon peel. Apparently, lime oleosaccharum. I've never made it, but apparently, it's terrible. Um, but lemon or, or, or orange, and I guess it's the method, but it would only be with lemon or orange peel. Okay. And can we get loaves of sugar these days? Anyway? You can still. I mean, you can buy loaves of, of palm sugar. Um, you can get <laughs> turbinado and loaves. Um, the palm sugar that you use to make a traditional pad thai with comes in a, like, part of a sphere, you know, and it's hard. Um, it's why I, I haven't made pad thai since I bought that thing three years ago because <laughs> it's a pain in the butt to use. Maybe I'll use it to make punch now that I know about oleosaccharum, though. What else are they doing with the punches that make them different? Are they different well, colors? Can they mix with that? Well, it's see, the thing is that the, the, the punch, there's a great book by David Wondrich, um, who is a brilliant writer. Gabe knows him also. Um, he is the, the booze and cocktail writer for Esquire magazine, as well as being a member of the Beverage Alcohol Resource, the bar group, the conveniently named <laughs> bar group. Um, and they do arguably the best bartender training in the country. Um, and, and whenever a, a student comes up to me and says, I'm going I'm to go to bartending school, I say, no, don't, because most of them are just, you know, I'm not going to say they're, they're not fly by night. They're just terrible. And if they don't have a liquor license, they work with colored water. And um, most bartending schools are just, as a restaurant manager in New York City, someone would come in with their certificate and would basically say, oh, that is so cute. <laughs> you know, um, but this actually is a genuinely good bartending training. And there's actually an online component. But anyway, um, Dave Wondrich, is, they refer to him as the historical oracle. And he is a cocktail historian. Yes, there is one. Because I think he used to be an English professor at Princeton or something. I don't know his history. but I like that he, for he a was, business card, though. He was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and he has written two great books. One's called Imbibe um, on the history of the cocktail. And it talks about Jerry Thomas, who was the first um, celebrity bartender. Which is essential reading for any would-be bartender, mixologist. Anyone who yeah. loves our business and industry. even as an amateur yeah. should read Imbibe. And then Punch, he wrote about the history of Punch. And there are some great recipes in the back, but he talks about the basis of it, the history and how it came to be largely during the Raj. And there were young British gentlemen who went to India. And these were guys who, this was their last chance. You didn't do it as a member of society because things were much better at home. But these people who were trying to make it and make something of themselves would go. And they just went to India and they ended up just 
basically destroying their livers using punch. Um, a lot of the ingredients for punch came originally from India. There weren't limes, or they called them lemons, um, in England because you can't grow them there. But it was that combination of sour, sweet, and strong. And we're not talking about PTSA um, punches. We're talking about punches that had a balance of sweet, sour, and alcohol. And I always say for, for drinks, for cocktails, the reason that I don't think of a vodka and cranberry as a cocktail is it tastes like a modified juice box, mm. <laughs> you know, with all that high fructose corn syrup in it. Um, a cocktail should be a little sweet, a little sour, and taste like booze. It's a drink for an adult. You should be able to tell that there's booze in there. Now, I've made enough drinks in my career as a bartender where people did not want the flavor of alcohol. When I used to crank out strawberry daiquiris and pina colada at the chart house in Dobbs Ferry, you know, I was a blender jockey for a while. I started putting that full shot of rum that was in the recipe in the drinks, and people were sending the drinks back, saying that they tasted, oh, I don't like this. You know, <laughs> like, that's, but it has booze in it. Well, it doesn't taste right. You know, I know that there are people who want cocktails who don't taste like they have booze in them. But then you shouldn't be ordering cocktails. That's just like your opinion, man. <laughs> <laughs> I think you should drink what you want to drink. Uh, you're, no, you're right. You're right. You're absolutely right. And if you and don't that's... want to taste alcohol, but you want a good buzz, we'll make a cocktail for you. Oh, I, yeah, I will. <laughs> I, I will. I mean, I used to get compliments on my Long Island iced teas, mm -hmm. which is not an easy compliment to get. <laughs> but no, I completely agree with you. And that is, I do want, above all else, I want the guests to be happy. And, and that's why I will shake the bejesus out of a martini for someone who wants their martini shaken. Ray Graff likes his martinis shaken. He says it's for expedition, though. He says <laughs> you know, he needs to do it quickly and get the drink done. But um, I will shake a cocktail for anyone who wants it that way, even though it's technically not the correct way to do it. Because it's for the guest. It's service, yeah, and it's a service industry. You're yeah. there to you're there to serve the guest. Oh, and then there's so many bartenders today, and I know you've seen them as well as I have, who think that they're God's gift to mixology, and it'd be <laughs> easier to get an audience with the Pope than to get a cocktail from one of these <laughs> these double sleeve tattooed, um, arm garter wearing, waxed mustachioed mixologists, <laughs> who look at you with this kind of a sneer, that makes me think, you know, I want to rip your mustache off of your face. <laughs> I want a cocktail. And Gabe knows these two gentlemen as well. There's Dale DeGroff, who is the most famous bartender in the country. He and I shared an office for a couple of years at Rainbow Room. He was the head bartender. And Tony Abu Ghanim, who created the cocktail program for the entire Bellagio and is known as the modern mixologist. These are the, like the grandfather and great uncle of bartenders today. Either of them would leap across a bar with a cocktail in a hand for you if you looked thirsty. And their way of doing things, the way the double tattooed mustachioed <laughs> guy that I described before, that is anathema to the way Dale and Tony work as bartenders, which is giving and caring. And oh, they happen to be making drinks also. Right. Yeah. Because the experience is 85, 90% of what you're trying to provide to your customer. Right. Not why, the, drink at home. Right, exactly. Why aren't you drinking it? Why don't you make a bowl of spaghetti at home? Because you want to go to a fancy Italian yeah. restaurant. And nothing turns you off worse than ordering something and getting a sneer from the bartender 
Uh, or if you even you that get you, that far. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> the you're worst. not getting the right cocktail, yeah. Now, there is a little bit of the hair shirt thing where I think some people, some Americans just kind of perversely think that if they're being treated badly, it must mean that they're in a great place. It's more important. Yeah, it must be a good place. They're being rude to me. You know, it's it's horrible. There's a great bar in Kingston called the Stockade Tavern. And Paul is a gentleman, and he is a great bartender, and he makes people feel glad to be there. And that's why you go to a bar. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, my bar manager at the Mercantile, Zoli, he uh, he has been at high-volume bars for the past 10, 12 years. Um, and this is his first sort of foray into, into craft cocktails. But what he has that's so special is the personality and the ability to make anybody who walks through that door comfortable. And I think that that, first and foremost, is what makes a great bar for me. The cocktails should be delicious. Yeah. Um, but you want to go back. Exactly. You want to go back. <laughs> that's <laughs> right. important. That's, and that's in- a good business model. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and, and to invoke Dale DeGroff again, you know, he has said it, and I've heard it over and over and over again. Um, if it weren't so true, I'd be tired of it. But he says, I can teach someone to make a drink. I can't teach them how to be nice. Right. Yeah. And, and, and some go in thinking they shouldn't be nice, I assume. Yeah. Like I said, though, you go into some places where you're being maltreated. You think, oh, I'm at a good bar. They're being mean to me. <laughs> mm. yeah. But I think it's also um, a, the personality that goes into the creative side of cocktailing, of mixology, um, is more akin to the chef in the kitchen and not necessarily the personality of a host. Um, and I think that some people get drawn to it because of the creative side and they just don't have the personality to be welcoming. They just have that right. face that, that doesn't really <laughs> make you feel comfortable. And uh, it's has not a name fault. we can't say on the radio. Right. <laughs> and, I, and I won't say that you need both as a bartender because primarily you need the guest service side because I can give someone who's nice and will treat people well um, a recipe to reproduce, and they can reproduce that recipe, and they can be, if not a complete bartender, they can be a good bartender for that bar. Um, Of course, it doesn't hurt to have someone who can be creative and come up with great balanced cocktails also, but the primary, the most important part is their personality and their ability to take care of guests and and make them want to be there and to stay for another cocktail. And that's what's going on with punch these days. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> See how you brought that around nonsensically? That was great. Now I'm going to tie um, in another part here. You talked about chili earlier, uh-huh. and now I'm hungry. But anyway, I wanted to ask about a good fall drink, since we're just about hopefully getting over this humidity weather into fall pretty soon. Do you have any cocktails you like to break out in the fall season? Well, it's whiskey time. It's whiskey time. That's right. Um, I Maybe more winter time, but I, I love a good hot buttered bourbon. Um, but I think that, you know, whiskey, whiskey cocktails, brown spirits, um, and more savory come in during the fall. Um, we'll be using a lot of apples. We'll be using pumpkin, uh, at the mercantile, garden liquid mercantile. We'll be using what is available at the time. Um, and I think what's seasonal, uh, but brown spirits, some things that feel more warm that you want to have right. around a fireplace. Those are. When do you switch over usually? Is there a well, specific time? You can also start transferring by making whiskey cocktails that are sour cocktails like a whiskey sour. You can do, you know, we mentioned in the other show, the, the Boulevardier, which is a Negroni, but made with whiskey instead of gin. Um, you can make a refreshing cocktail with whiskey as the base to take you into September and October before you start getting into the all-spirit um, cocktails that uh, really 
you need to sip, and you cannot have just come out of even an 80-degree um, outdoor temperature. <laughs> right in front of the fire is a good place. Yeah. yeah, as the temperature changes, I think that's how, you know, this will, this will be our first transition from summer to fall at, at my place, but um, I think that the temperature is going to dictate it. The, you know, the weather outside is going to dictate when we start to switch over. That is one of my pet peeves, though, when seeing fall beer when it's 95 degrees outside. Well, just... there are craft beer nerds um, and beer geeks who will drink a double imperial Russian stout when it's 95 degrees out, and they're at a barbecue, and they're sweating bullets and drinking <laughs> a, you know, an 11% alcohol beer, and it's just inane. It's the opposite of what you your body wants you to be drinking, which is probably a Coors Light. I know those people. You know, and <laughs> I think we all do. And and I think some of us might have been that person at some point. Um, <laughs> no but I think that. the appropriateness of, of the beverage to the conditions you're in is something that, first of all, a great bartender, whether it's beer or cocktail, um, knows. Uh, but... It's also something that great beer bars now are um, recognizing the fact that not everybody wants an IPA, even though if you look at the numbers, everybody wants an IPA. Yeah, it's just. But, you know, that like the Berliner Weisses and the other light sour beers that are showing up, I stopped at, um, stopped by Suarez Family Brewery the other day, and I tell you what, I think he's going to be like one of the next stars in New York. I haven't heard um, of them. He's um, his name is Dan Suarez, and uh, he he worked at Murray's as a cheesemonger for years with a friend of mine. I didn't know this until after I talked to uh, my former student. But he's making phenomenal beers, and he's on Route Nine in I think it's between Hudson and Tivoli. There's so many great little breweries uh, up and down the Hudson Valley right now. A Plan B Farm Brewery, Amazing in Poughkeepsie. Stuff. Yeah, you know he's Evan is he's first of all he's an absolute dear. He is just such a nice guy. Mm-hmm. And um, it's only 10 minutes from culinary. So I took my students there on a field trip that I was able to fit into the class time because we drove 10 minutes there and had the visit and we drove 10 <laughs> minutes back. And his beers, he's making everything, all New York ingredients, including the malt, which is very rare. Yeah. As he says, you call yourself a local brewery, but your malt came from Canada. Iowa yeah. or <laughs> Canada, you know, and the hops <coughs> came from Oregon. Um, so how local are you? But he's growing on his 26-acre farm. He hopes to eventually be able to grow everything that goes into his beer. I don't think he's begun to be able to grow the grain, though. Well, and then he would have to malt, too. Yeah. Right. But, yeah, he's um, and his beer, his farm beer, is a great summer beer. Mm. Low alcohol, a little bit of sour. You know, sour beers um, have hit the public, I think, this year. Oh, yeah. This summer. Oh, yeah. Um, they may not be completely mainstream yet. They're but definitely started, creeping on the menus. I know of here in Albany, like the Gastro Pub and the Belly. They're yes. definitely creeping on there more it and more. It started two summers ago when Peekskill's Simple Sour um, was written about in the Times, the New York Times. And that was the first shot across the bow, I think, uh, for the public to start understanding sour beers. And the line, I think Gabe heard this already, um, that I use when people say, oh, sour beer, I don't like it. I said, well, do you like sparkling lemonade? If you like sparkling lemonade, you're going to like this Berliner Weiss because it's very similar. Now, some sour beers can get really funky. You know, when you get into like Goose from from Belgium, which is not just sour, it's also smells like wet horse blanket, <laughs> which is the um, the descriptor for Britannomyces um, yeast being used in beers. It's wet horse blanket, yum. <laughs> um, but uh, the simple sours, they're called kettle sours because the souring is done in the first mash kettle. The lactic acid is created, 
They raise the temperature for the boil. It kills off the lactobacillus at the level of acid that you want. You then go on to make the beer, and the acid stays in it, and you can control the amount of sourness. And sometimes it's a very light sour. Now, the way Evan makes beer at Plan B is complete opposite, where he just lets things happen. He lets nature take its course, and he uses yeast from his own beehives, and they just open-top fermenters, and when he puts the beer down into what's called the cool ship, which is a long, low, wide cooling device using physics, um, he just opens the doors to the barn and lets whatever microbes, whatever bugs, you know, beneficial bugs are in the environment, land in the beer. And however he does it, his beers are super elegant, considering the fact that he uses such primitive, literally primitive. Methods. And that's where you really get into terroir in beer. Right. When you're right. talking about ambient yeast, um, natural fermentation, open-top fermentation. It's a, a really cool thing that people are starting to pay attention to, not just the terroir in wine, but the terroir in beers and also in spirits. Yeah, it tastes like it does because of where it's from. Right. Yeah. If he was to make that in Ithaca, it would be a very different tasting beer. Yep. Right. Uh, we usually end on a funny story. Either of you guys have a funny story oh, on hand? Oh, I'm not funny at all. I can't think of anything. Funny story. Funny story. Um, oh, yeah, well, I got one. You uh, deal the, with the rye. The first time you distilled rye. Oh, yeah. That's, that's another <laughs> one. Um, I was distilling bourbon for a while um, at Tuttletown, the Hudson Baby Bourbon. Uh, this was before we even had any rye. And... Um, when we started doing, I started learning how to do the rye. Um, I did it the same way that we were making the bourbon, you know, which was with corn. And uh, apparently, at the time, I didn't know, but rye is a much more glutinous than corn is, and um, it foams up in the fermenters, which uh, at that point I wasn't really aware of. And it, I think it happened more than once where I would come it's in. It's also and very I, sticky. Oh yeah, this is not fun like <laughs> Cancun foam party foam. Yeah. This is like <laughs> you know, still sticking in the cracks of my ear kind of foam. Um, is the foam in Cancun? Yeah, really open foam? up the garage door and like this little blob of foam would slowly just roll out. <laughs> it and lives. Then spend the rest of the week power washing everything. It's alive. Yeah, yeah, and and of course lost at least a. a third to a half of each <laughs> fermenter that just foamed over. So. It was like, funny now. It wasn't funny at the time. Yeah. <laughs> but, then remember, but, but then the part about the still, when you had like the three-inch wall of gunk in the still that you couldn't get off. Oh, I don't know about that one. Maybe that was your dad told Maybe that, that was his story. I, I do remember also uh, coming in um, and forgetting to turn the condenser water. I probably shouldn't even say this on the radio, <laughs> but forgetting to turn the condenser water on uh, and working downstairs and coming upstairs and uh, the still had started coming over. But the vapor was still vapor because it, the condenser didn't have any cold water in it. It was just pouring alcohol vapor out. And luckily, and alcohol vapor is quite explosive. So luckily yeah. <laughs> got in there and got it turned off, opened the windows, turned on the fans, and got it all out of there. But um, there's a reason why home distillation is illegal. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a great note to end on. There you go. There you go. John and Gabe, thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you. Our pleasure. That was John Fisher of the Culinary Institute of America and Gabe Arenzo of Gardner Liquid Mercantile. This has been Food Friday Leftovers. I'm Ashley Kinsey. And I'm Dave Hopper. Be sure to check out Vox Pop Food Friday every Friday at 2 p.m. on WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Our producer is Jessica Blaustein Marshall. Our theme is Beach Disco by Dougie Wood. Food Friday Leftovers is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. And tune in next week to see what else we find in the fridge. 